What? Nothing. What? I have nothing I'm gonna do. Okay. Alright, let's get this uh let's get this intro started then. Let's do this. Let's let's start the podcast. Let's get this train worker rolling. You hold me hearty, set your sails for outer space for this be the bum voyage podcast. No, cancel it. Just, we're done here. Abort No, abort mission. <laughs> So, now that we have that unfortunateness out of the way, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the next installment in the Bomb Voyage Disney Podcast. I am your host, Ken Johnson, and joining me is my co-host, as always, Travis. How are you doing today? It really depends on what you mean by doing. Yeah. What we are doing today is we are watching uh, my pick on our back and forth for the podcast, which was... After last week's interesting adventure through the world of West Grand Clement's Hercules, we decided to look at the immediate response film to that, which was Treasure Planet. So, for those of you guys who don't know the, the story behind this movie, long story short, this was a movie that these two iconic directors were fighting to get made for years, but kept getting pushed aside for, you know... Just, you know, some throwaway films, you know, like The Little Mermaid or Aladdin or, you know, or, or so on and so forth. But this was their passion project that they wanted to get done for a long time. And they finally got it made after, you know, new management at Disney allowed them to do so. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about this one because I feel like Treasure Planet is one of those movies that I think I really just do like this movie a little bit more every time I watch it. Like... And after my, my last time watching as an adult, I was just like, everyone knows, obviously, there's a lot of adult stuff in Disney movies, and they tack a lot of darker themes. But, like, there's a couple scenes in this movie where, either based on what they do or they don't do, I'm like, yeah, this is the reason why this is, like, one of my favorites. I haven't seen this movie since I was, like, 12. And I watched it, and I felt, meh. And I hadn't really thought about it since, truthfully. It didn't do anything for me when I watched it, but uh, rewatching it, I actually had there's a there was a lot better than I thought it was. I I didn't give it credit where credit was due, so I'm I'm glad I rewatched it. I'm glad I saw it and gave it a more of a chance. For sure, compared to last week, where rewatching Hercules led us in mostly the opposite direction. Yeah, I'm like, hmm, yeah, okay. There's hmm, interesting. It just—it's one that, in particular, it is a Disney movie. I feel like, you know, people don't talk enough about. Just like you know, your choice for next week we'll get to, which is another Disney movie that people often don't talk enough about. So. Like, on that theme, why don't we get started with the basics of Treasure Planet? So, the one thing I want to bring up about this movie from the get-go is, it's not going to be a thing I'm going to reference all the time, but I think there's a couple of, in particular, sequences, I think, that Treasure Planet does a really good job of this particular aspect. Like, most, like most Disney pro, pro, projects, 
Treasure Planet is based off of an old literary work. In this case, the original book Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, and although there's also the, the, the live-action Disney version of, of Treasure Island as well, so it's kind of like a remake or a reimagining of both in a way. But as you stated before, like the, the interesting thing about uh, the original Treasure Island movie is that that was like the beginning of, you know, it's the base point of where a lot of modern quote-unquote pirate cinema comes from, even, you know, just the other various versions of uh, Treasure Planet, Treasure Island that have been done over the years, even one including, you know, talking felt creatures, you know, like a lot, there's a lot of, this, this is a particular story has been done quite a few different ways, but, um, this particular way of doing it, I thought was really interesting. Just like, although the idea of treasure Island in space doesn't appeal to everybody, but for me, the idea of, uh, when people in anime say the word space pirate, they think of one thing, but for, for me, like the literal idea of having like the imagery of, you know, of like this traditional kind of, uh, sea combat, in space. <laughs> like, I always thought was really cool. Okay. Um, that's the one thing that didn't work for me nearly as well. Like, I don't know. There's some parts where they don't... I know it's a movie, and there, there's only so much you can start thing in this nitpicking at, but... There was a part where it's like, but they're in space. How does this thing work? How does that? They don't. For sure. They're they're just in a ship in space, and they never like try to explain. It. I don't want them to go into like huge giant sci-fi. Yeah, we're not watching you know, Disney Star Trek. Yes, yet, we're you not. Know? Like... Yes, I don't want them to be Star Trek, but I want them to be like. How give me some explanation, and they don't fully commit it to the space theme it's just like they kind of just wanted to fly instead of be on a sail for sure yeah. yeah there's yeah i definitely sense in certain parts of the movie they take more or less advantage of the idea that they are like in in space and you know yeah and they all that. definitely should have taken more advantage either gone either way with it but i would have definitely them to go more more spacey i don't know it it it's it is a minor annoyance, but it was something that was bugging me throughout the whole movie. I have to say, but when it worked, it worked. The the ship does look cool in space and playing with the sails and the whoosh. I like that. For sure. Um, so I just wanted to set that part aside as like, although I'm not going to go on like beat for beat. I am not the kind of like, well, the book was better kind of thing, but like. At the same point, though, some of the my favorite scenes in this movie are their direct interpretations of stuff from the the book or from the original movie. Like, there's other stuff that's like loosely based off of stuff, but like I think it is really cool that there is like shot for shot recreations of certain scenes um, at particular parts of the the treasure treasure planet story. So why don't we uh, why don't we dive in, as it were? So our story begins um, actually in a narration, which is actually that was kind of a cool idea, where we see this, you know, this booming voice narrator talking about the this uh, pirate called Nathaniel Flint, who is, you know, the 
most notorious pirate ever. And it's really cool design, too, because it's the first, like, like, direct alien design that we see in the movie. And it's, like, he's got this cool, like, lizard-like lockjaw, but then, like, this line of, like, four or five, like, slit yellow eyes on either side. Um, but other than that, he's still just wearing, you know, just dressed like a pirate and everyone's doing their things. You're seeing these ships firing back and forth against each other. And the main thing that apparently he was known for that we're told about is the fact that as soon as he would, you know, take over these ships, he would literally vanish without a trace. We then pan back to see that we were actually looking at an interactive storybook read by a small child. Which I thought was kind of a cool way to do it. To start and like being like, whoa, this is actually kind of a little bit more intense than you're used to for a Disney movie. And then kind of like eases you back into the, the, the Disney-ness of it all. So, from here we meet the child version of our, uh, our protagonist, uh, James Hawkins. Jim Hawkins. Um, and his mother, Sarah. And we get a chance to meet both their characters and kind of get a sense for their for their dynamic. And in general, you know, parent characters are usually a little underrated when it comes to Disney movies, usually because they're, I mean, most of them aren't there for one reason or another. Um, but, you know, they, they show, share some really cute chemistry and it's, you already immediately get a feel for, for their relationship where Jim is, you know, head in the clouds or in the stars in this case where he's fascinated by all of this pirate stuff and and all this. And, you know, his big thing is that he believes that Treasure Planet is not just a fairy tale thing. Treasure Planet being the place that's said to be where Flint would disappear and put all of his treasures, all in one giant place called Treasure Planet. Um, and he believes it's real, but his mother thinks, that, oh, it's just a... It's just a legend, but but I know it's real. But she's a nice mother, so she's like, well, you know, if you believe that it's real, you know, th then it's real. And, you know, and so, so they share so, a nice little scene there. And one of the cooler, like, s smaller, like, heartfelt visuals I liked was when it's like, all right, now, you know, time to go to bed and all that stuff. And then as soon as she leaves, the screen goes black. And you just see the silhouette of him opening the book lit by the thing under the covers because he can't stop reading um and so that was that was kind of cute and the, the narrator keeps going on about how people have searched you know for decades looking for for flint's trove as they sometimes call it um but you know they're the overall message you know in the book being that you know that there is no limit to where one can soar Instantly transport 14 years into the future. <laughs> so it's a bit of a time jump, but admittedly, you know, it comes off a lot cleaner than most storied time jumps I've run into because of the fact that there's only so much information you were supposed to glean from the very beginning. So it's like, it feels like after the time jump is kind of like, quote unquote, the beginning of the movie and everything before that is just like nice setup prologue. Like the movie would work without the first five minutes or so, but it's so really nice that it's there. Yeah, fair enough. I don't know. I You could have cut it and it wouldn't would have changed too much. And I think it would have made the opening slightly more cooler because you get the really cool The, the action packed scene. opening, yeah. So maybe that would have been cool to start with. 
But, I mean, I guess it works in context. For sure. Um, also in context, for what's worth, there was actually an alternate opening where the main difference was that you were hearing the approximate same story, but it's from the perspective of an adult Jim uh, telling back the stories from his childhood. And a, it was originally part of a script where that was going to be somewhat throughout the story, or at least during, like, you know, kind of like one in the beginning, one middle, maybe, maybe end kind of thing. But they ultimately decided it'd be better to, you know, focus on Jim in the present tense than rather than having them being in a an adult Jim uh, telling stories back. I don't know. I I think I prefer the way they did it, but it's just sometimes I find that kind of alternative stuff interesting. It could have been interesting, but I probably would have been better this way. For sure. So we get to the adult Jim Hawkins, who's played by Joseph Gordon-Lovett. And we see him on a, a sunboard, which is one of the cooler, like, niftier kind of inventions in the movie, uh, which is, it's sort of like a weird cross between a, you know, between like, a, it's like the space equivalent of a skateboard, but it kind of works like a parasail because it has this giant solar-powered sail that it uses to actually, you know, fly wherever. And you get the sense that he... You know, is what you would imagine the grown-up of, you know, his adventure-loving self would be. He's kind of this, you know, at first this kind of like, you can't tell me what to do, kind of like daredevilish kind of teen character. But we don't see that part of it yet. Right now, we're still in the mode of like, oh, cool visuals. And, you know, he's doing all these cool stunts and all this stuff. And But eventually what gets him in trouble is that he takes his daredevil thing into a, you know, a construction yard and does some really dangerous stuff in there actually almost gets himself crushed at one point because he's just looking for whatever thrill he can find um, until he is then you know caught by robot cops um, which is which was kind of a funny way to end the sequence because just even this the the kind of sirens they use in the robot cops they were clearly going for like the funniest kind of like disarming like oh, come on like they're even basically writing like robot like cop mopeds essentially they're not even like really intimidating following him i, I did love the little robot cops they were they were cool that little saying they're so stupid but i love it you gotta love it for sure yeah the the a lot there's a lot of different the comic relief in this movie comes in a lot of different forms and a lot of different characters at one point or another. Um, and I think that definitely works in this movie's, this film's benefit is the, 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 the variety in the characters. Even the ones that only really have like one scene, like the, you know, like the robot cops. We cut back to uh, the Benbow Inn, uh, which is the inn run by his mother, Sarah, who, surprise, is still in the movie. You know, doesn't have, you know... You know, he's not... We have a Disney protagonist that's not an orphan for once. Yay. So... 50-50. Fair enough. We'll get there. Um, but, you know, so we see her character. She's overworked and going crazy and, you know, trying to, to keep track of everybody. And in the midst of talking through all of this, she's trying to defend... Um, um, defend her son to Doppler, who is a friend of hers, who is a dog scientist, you know, because this is aliens and stuff. And this also is the first time we see a lot more of just the various kinds of weird alien species of a thing. It's almost like the cantina scene, but, you know, less Star Wars. 
not in the, the, the shady kind of way, but in the sense of like, oh, look at all the, the cool kind of aliens all around kind of thing. Sure. Not the best comparison, but, you know, it's space. There's aliens and people are eating food, whatever. Um, okay. So, they, um, so she's trying to defend him, saying that, you know, he's almost off his probation. He, you know, he's actually been doing really good lately, you know, and no matter what, you know, I, I know he's rough around the edges, but I don't want to give up on him. Door busts open, arrested by the, the cops, drops all of her dishes. She's freaking out. And they list off, like, all the things he's messed up. And even to the point where one of the funniest jokes in the movie is when they're, the robot is listing off the... It's like, you know, in violation of code 00986-7642, paragraph 3, sentence. And Jim interrupts, six, thank you. And they just keep going on, because... Obviously, this is not the first time they've had run-ins with, uh, with Jim Hawkins. So, they give him his final warning, saying that if he's ever caught doing anything stupid like this again, then he is going to be sent to juvenile hall. So, obviously, this does not go well with his mother. Oh, well, I almost forgot one of the funnier jokes in the movie with the robots at the very end when they leave. They're just kind of dissing on, the guy, on Jim, just to be like, We've seen this all the time, ma'am. Good children. Going off on bad paths. <laughs> you know, it's like, very that losers. He looks up at him and just... They did literally just... The robot doesn't even reach for his head, hat. It just goes up and down. He goes, you take care now. Let's motor. And they just turn around and go. And it's, it's, it's a simple joke, but... I don't know, even as a kid, I thought that was the funniest thing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's little moments like that that make... Do often make movies like this. So this is immediately followed by, you know, the concerned mother enraged at him. Just like, do you want to end up in juvenile hall? Like, are you trying to, you know, I'm doing my best for you. Like, this is, you never, but he's continually just complaining how stuck he is, which this is a trick I've seen Clements pull off before. And it's a common theme through a lot of the movies I really like. And what I mean by this is this ironic state of where the protagonist starts at compared to to their surroundings. Like, for example, if you take, you know, like in Little Mermaid, you know, she is trying to grow up, get a, be her own person, be away from her father. And what she seeks more than anything is, you know, is to be part of the land, which she's fascinated with. Because of the fact that the irony is that her father is literally king of the sea. So... By that very definition, there's literally nowhere else but land she can go that she can escape her father. Mm-hmm. At the same point, you know, you know, Aladdin lives in, you know, what we've you know, heard from, like, this universe, even though we see very few places, that Agrabah is, like, one of the greatest places to live in, like, in this sort of thing, but he's the lowest of that. Like, you know, he's the town with this giant palace and all these markets and all these interesting people and happenings were told in the beginning, like how awesome Agrabah is, but he's like the one level of person that doesn't get to enjoy that. Jim lives in a world of space travel. He lives in a world where he's, you know, dreamed all of his life of being this grand adventurer with, you know, all these great sights to see and all these places to go. And not only does he live on what pretty much for Sone is like one of the most boring planets you can think of, but he lives on an in-planet. He's constantly surrounded by people from other planets who get to go to the places he doesn't get to go to. And I think that that noticing that really helps relate to his 
um, his frustration in, you know, being stuck the way that he is. Just curious what your thoughts were on that. Um, it would have been... It, it, it They should have made that slightly more obvious. I don't want them to, like, say, oh, no, this is them. But it, they don't portray it quite enough. It's cool once you realize it, but you don't realize it right away because it's kind of just moving on where he's just, you know, angsty teenager. Yeah, because he's, like, 17 when this movie takes place. So you get that... He's nondescript teenage age, but yeah, sure, probably, whatever. So, but so yeah, so he's still in that point where like you expect the kind of behavior out of him, but like it's throughout the movie you start you see that more developed or more, you know, defined of that being the way it is. But instead, what they decide, they eventually they get to the point their argument's going nowhere, um, and Jim storms off, and he decides he's just gonna go, you know, walk around waiting for an inciting incident to happen. While uh, Doppler and um, and Sarah continue to just talk about what they're going to do with him. Like, they don't want to obviously send him to Juvenile Hall. But, you know, it really comes through in this movie how much she, she cares. Like, they try very hard to not make her just, like, you know, the nagging mother, mother knows best kind of character. Like, as, as little as, little screen time as this character gets, I like how they characterized his mother quite a bit um even well one of her best lines in the movie is right around the corner when we get back to what jim was doing but you know the the few scenes she has i really like that you do get a sense of like what she wants what her character is that kind of thing but as for jim you know as usually happens this about time in the runtime of the movie something crazy happens at this point being that you know this mysterious spaceship crashes in you know right in front of the inn and he is met by a mysterious snapping turtle pirate named billy bones um he's got moments to live and uses his last dying breaths to open up this mysterious chest with this small you know brown sack in it pulls him up to him in his last dying breaths after he brings him into the house as he simply says, beware, keep it safe, beware the cyborg. Now, this is one of the first scenes that's a direct comparison to the to the book and the movie, where, you know, it's just a marooned ship, and instead it was beware the one-armed man. Um, but at the same point, though, I, I like the way that they keep it together. The fun thing I like about how they do it is... One of my favorite aspects of this movie in general is the way it quickly jumps between drama and comedy in ways that don't feel jarring. And this is one of the first ones I really like when she's, after she's done being mad at him, she kind of like opens up like this locket she has of like all these pictures of him when he was a kid and she's thinking about him when he's younger. And the main one she sticks on is this idea that, you know, all the time he would come home with some like weird creature he found and ask if he could keep it. And then instantly he busts in in the middle of this rainstorm with this giant snapping turtle pirate. And she's just like, what the hell is going on? And, like, it's cool because, like, it is, like, it is a good laugh. But it, it's, but it also works within the, 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 the tone that it's not too funny that they can't jump back into to serious tone back again. 
Yeah, and the, this whole scene is where the movie really gets going. This is the whole sequence is really, really good. Mm-hmm. It's really done well. The whole scene where he comes out, beware the cyborg. Just like it's it it's the little things, like how like how effect, how like articulated his cough is even when he's like when he's dying. It's not like just a typical thing. Like he's like really wheezing. And you really get a, a a sense for it. And it's just how, like, panicked he is when he talks about the cyborg. You get you already get this idea of this kind of character. It's, like, one of my favorite kind in general of character introductions. When, like, you know so much about a character before they even, be, you know, even set foot on screen. You know, when that kind of thing is executed correctly. I love that kind of build-up. So, before we see almost anything, we already have, you know, we don't even know... Yet, what is inside a the what 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 even was in the treasure box or what what they're supposed to do? He doesn't even give him directions. He just says, "Keep it safe. Beware the cyborg." So after that business is is put aside, um, they decide that they're going to try to figure out what the thing is and what they're after. He opens the thing up to find a strange gold sphere. With some strange patterns on it. And um, what's interesting about it is when they're doing all of this, they're still trying to figure things out. As Doppler is looking at the thing and he says he can't find any, like it doesn't match up to like any language or any culture or anything like that he can think of. And jokes around with like even all of his years of experience, it may take him years to figure out what, you know, how to get into the thing. And almost an instinct. Jim clicks the you know a couple of different things and things starts to spin it around, and the thing opens up in a great light. And he's he's just subtly annoyed by it, which is what I really like about Doppler is he's he works as a great comic relief because it's he's a comic relief, but he also is like the smart man, which is kind of interesting. Like he's he's a very knowledgeable person. He's not dumb. He just has a very quirky personality. So he's like. With even all of my years of research, it would take me even further to... Hey! Like, he's just subtly annoyed that he opens up the thing. Yeah, because he just, like, randomly presses... He's just got really stupid luckily and just hit the right buttons because he's the main character, you know. Yeah. Plot had to move forward. At the same point, like... if I mean, obviously this isn't set up in the movie, and this is, like... This is total headcanon right now. But, like, if I were to try to... Im- in some degree, justify why, other than because he's the protagonist, why he could open the thing. Like, it's... it Like, is it supposed to be looks like it's structured like a puzzle block or something like that? So it, it might make sense that, like, someone like Jim who, like, thinks more like that or less, like, pure scientifically would, you know, have an easier time trying to get it open. Like, because the only other person who tries to open it is, you know... Th- person will get to and they try to open it with brute force so it makes sense that that may have been the reason he could open it that's but like i said that is pure like fan fiction headcanon yeah, i'm just say, speculating that interesting if the movie gave if the, some indication yeah. or maybe he just like maybe all the stories he read gave him maybe some gloom or something but they just the movie just says they it's do it a little he's, yeah it's a little prophecy-ish it's not the best plot point in the movie but it's but the, it, the joke kind of sweeps it under the rug a little bit, which is kind of nice. Yes, that that does help it, and it does just 
use it to move along to more interesting things. So it's okay. Let's go. Right. So the Golden Globe, you know, opens up and reveals this giant space map all across the room. And as they look through the whole thing, they realize that it is not merely, you know, just a, a normal map, but it is like it contains areas far past what peop- some places that even people had possibly ever explored. The main thing being that um, the map seems already like it's pulling towards one specific direction, and all of a sudden the map picks up speed, zooms across this whole cosmos, and reveals the potential actual coordinated location of Treasure Planet. Um, which, you know, you know, apparently if this map is to be relieved, is actually real. You know, a place that contains, you know, more treasure than the rest of the world combined. And immediately, Jim, being the adventurer that he is, jumps to, we need to go to Treasure Planet, not only because this is what we've built, what we've come to, but, you know, because this is where, you know, we really need to go. Um, I'm going to apologize right now. I, I skipped a scene and I talked myself out of it. It's it's not huge. I'll fix it. So only other thing is that I forgot how they went from one place to the other. So immediately after finding the thing, um, an undisclosed quote unquote group of pirates breaks into the Benbow, chases after them, and the Benbow is burned to the ground. They go to a different place. That's the only thing that changed. Yeah. I'm sorry. Just, it happens. Yeah. Um, so the main thing also was him saying that, like, you know, we could rebuild the Benbow a hundred times over with with what we have because the bomb's still devastated that her life's work has been destroyed in an instant. You know, but she's still like, are you out of your mind? There's no way you are setting a, you know, across the gal- multiple galaxies in order to get to, you know, the home base of the most dangerous pirate that ever lived. Um, who which has disappeared and we have no idea is alive or dead. Because he's an alien, so we have no idea how long, you know, he lived for or anything like that. Um, so the, once again, jumping back and forth with the comic relief thing, Doppler jumps in again and he goes, I was like, come on, come on, Doppler, back me up here, please. And he goes, you know, Sarah, you know, you're, you're right. This would be a, a journey such as this is just way too dangerous for him to even consider going on alone. Well, at least finally, someone here is speaking some sense. That's why I'm going with him. I I do love that line. That line just, that whole scene works. It's really good. It's just like, no, of course not. Let's say, but I go with him and he starts gathering all this stuff up and it's, uh, I love that scene. And that's what makes Hawkins and Doppler such a good match, too, because, you know, Hawkins is all adventure and no, you know, book smarts. And Doppler is this, you know, great... Doppler's irony is that he's a... You know, he's an astrologist in a world of, you know, of space. But, you know, he kind of sticks to one planet. He's all research and no actual discovery. So the idea of, you know, actually getting to see all of this stuff that he's researched for his whole life is, like, this big, exciting thing. And she's still, like, you know, so confused about what's going on. But Jim rings back in the comedy again, and he brings up the third most important reason he wants to do this is because he realizes how much of a screw-up he's been, and he sees finding Treasure Planet and fixing all of this, like, his one last shot to prove to his mother that he can actually be, like, 
a legitimate person and actually like not just be the guy that screws things up all the time. Um, which, you know, is it a, it was a mature moment we needed early on because if I had to deal with, like, I understand why he is like in like pure, you know, teen angst at the beginning of the movie, but like five more minutes of it. And I would have been really upset. Like they, they, they escalated his character just the right amount they needed just in time to make him tolerable. <laughs> and and sometimes you do have to make a character unlikable, even if he's your main character. But yeah, that, that is a small but very important bit of character development that really needed to happen. Yeah, definitely. And they, I, I do have to emphasize that it's, one more moment and it just would have been too much and it's definitely and it's nice that he just comes clear and he comes he says it, and you're like oh thank god the movie just you can feels tell like because you can tell he means it that's the big thing like even when he screws up in the first place unlike most teenager things where they're like you can't tell me what to do like when he did mix mess up and he got arrested he is actually still disappointed in himself and you get the feeling like it's not just because he got caught you can tell it's because his mother's disappointed in him like, the, and that's important to her character, too, that you can care that, like, that despite, like, everything else in the world, he just doesn't give a damn about that he really does care about his mother and what his mother thinks of him. And despite the fact that his mother is very much still, like, she doesn't really have much else to do until the end of the movie, like, you even feel like a small arc for her in that sense, too, of her, you know, despite everything that he screwed up, that she does still have to, like, you know, accept him as, like, this slightly, you know, you know, like, accept him as this redemptive character that actually wants to, to fix things, as, you know, because you imagine the situation, this is the first time he's heard, that she's heard Jim say, like, look, I know I've screwed up before, but I'm really gonna change this time, and I'm not gonna do anything stupid, but, like, but this is the time he means it, and she can tell that, and, like, that's... Like, that's where the importance of, like, minor characters comes from. And as much as I love Jim in this movie, if if it wasn't for how good everybody else is in this movie, like, it wouldn't function nearly as much. Because, it, I mean, it, it's pirates. We're going to have a large, literal crew of characters that we're dealing with. Speaking of a crew of characters, we head out to the planet Mont- to the uh, space base Montressor, which is... Shaped kind of like a crescent moon, which is kind of a cool little little thing that, like, their quote-unquote moon is actually this giant space base. That, and it makes for a nice match cut as well. Yeah, I, I do love that. I'm not a person who, like, is in with all the cuts and all that. But that that does look really cool when you just slowly go into the moon and it just turns a little bit. And just like, oh, it's this giant space city. For sure. As that goes on too, it's you once again hear the I think it's like the second time we hear the actual like like overture theme of the movie, which I also think is really cool because it has the it's a lot of horns, it's really flowing, like nice like piratey kind of like upbeat adventure song kind of thing. Small moat, just really like that particular uh, song in the uh, you know score part of the movie. Um, so they're walking, you see them walking around everything and. Doppler getting back to comic relief again has built this big, like, uh, you know, in case of anything kind of suit for himself um, that he can, like, barely walk around in um, as they're trying to figure out where they're where they're going. And, you know, you see the subtleties of dangers as 
he has a this really big, you know, intimidating like sailor robot uh, uh, alien that he runs into, and uh, you know, so he's like, oh, you know, we're not home anymore. Like, there's you know, dangerous people about, and you know, not all aliens are nice like they were at home and that kind of thing. And they end up on their ship, the RLS Legacy. Um, so they they climb aboard the ship where we start meeting more of the people that are actually um, on the ship. The first one is a man named Arrow who is dressed in very, you know, traditional, like, you know, pirate, you know, sailor captain kind of military-ish uniform. And they immediately refer, he refers to himself as Arrow and they say, well, you know, Captain Arrow, it's brilliant to meet you. You know, we're excited to go on this adventure where he immediately corrects to say, no, I'm actually not the captain. The captain is aloft. And spinning down through the, through there is Amelia, who is the captain of the ship, who is a uh, cat-like uh, alien, who is so you know oh big surprise the you know uh, say that sarcastically, but it's kind of cool that the captain of the ship isn't actually the big intimidating you know masculine rock monster, but is the you know the the female you know. You know, military cat is the captain of the ship, and she is probably one of my favorite characters, um, just because great character design. I really like the the outfit of the character, but she, you know, she's voiced by um, by Emma Thompson, and she has this ability with a lot of her lines where she sometimes in mid line will jump back and forth between comic relief and and serious. Like she does this really awesomely well written, like fast talking introduction. Where she, you know, says, like, you know, I've been on these adventures, but I'm not going to bother you talking about all of my scars. This is my, you know, this is my second-in-command arrow. One of the best people you'll ever have. You know, straight, straight, you know, straight, strong, true, all this stuff. He goes, oh, please, Captain, you flatter me. He goes, like, oh, shut up, you know, I don't mean a word of it. <laughs> and, like, and it shows off this just insane confidence she has, um, you know, in this role. And, um... I mean, it for sure, it's probably one of the best, like, like 30-second introductions of, like, any character in this movie. Just absolutely love her character. Yeah, yeah, her character definitely brings a more, like, ease-adventure type to it that just, it, she just brings out better in better characters. Like, her interactions with other characters are just some of the more interesting stuff, especially with the, the Doctor dude Dilbert and yeah yeah they um and there's and you see a couple of the, the smaller characters as they kind of walk around which is kind of neat like one of the first ones they meet is there's a there's this weird squid creature that literally talks in a language that to us would be just he talks in farts and you know yeah. James steps on one of his tentacles and he freaks out and uh, Dilbert like uses like armpit farts and just pfft, noises in order to talk back to him and apologize. It was like it's like a language called flatulum. Yeah, that was definitely necessary. you know sometimes need to think for the kids. But well, the other one, the one I actually thought was interesting was there's this one guy who's got his arms crossed on the side of the the ship, and the and all of a sudden uh, the arms uncross and there's a second face on the chest and he goes. What are you looking at, weirdo? And the head gets up, and the the hair turns out to be tentacles, and walks over. And was like, yeah, weirdo, and it's actually just two different aliens. 
And I'm like, okay, that's clever character design. I do love... I do love the character design in all the minor characters. Right. But, I don't know, that was a minor thing that annoyed me. With all the aliens, only the main characters are just, like, a dog dude and a cat lady and a kid. <laughs> For sure. I, yeah, it's... it's. I think it's part of it is because, like, mo... Well, I'll, I'll get into that later. Um, they... But they go through those sort of basic introductions before, you know, Delbert accidentally says the word, you know, James was the one that found the treasure. And th- then she immediately shuts him up, you know, asks to see him in the cabin. And she very clearly states, you know, with this is where she gets into like more of her authority mode that, you know, like, I don't really care for the crew that you chose. Uh, for this trip, I think that they're all, they all seem to be up to no good. They, you know, they seem, you know, disorganized and, you know, don't seem like they can be trusted. You know, which I think part of the reason for that might be something that, I mean, once again, it's one of those things that I wish they would have touched on. There's a couple of lines here and there I wish they would have added, but like, it's definitely possible that could have been that they never discussed in this movie how, like, how they're funding this voyage. So it's, very possible that the reason they went for this particular crew is because, you know, they couldn't afford to hire someone who was, you know, better screened for the, the job. The, they do mention that the, the professor is doing all this. Yeah, that the, he's the one that's in charge of all this. And But at yes. the same point, he also, you could go with the idea that, like I said, he's not the most street smart guy in the world. Yes. That that's... he very easily is the kind of person who would hire the, you know... A suspicious crew without thinking about it. Yes, that's that's what I kind of assume. But yeah, the movie should have gone maybe just a line or two. But but well, it it's it's easy enough to imply, I think. But for sure. Um, so while they're discussing all of this, like we see some of the the turmoil kicking in. We see a lot of bantering between uh, Doppler and uh, uh, and uh, Captain Amelia. And, but it's also, like, very playful at the same time. Like, even when she responds to him, like, he... I can't remember the exact words, but he basically... You know, he call, she just calls him an imbecile. Like, straight up. And he's like, now see here! And she just completely pushes him aside. He's like, Doctor, I'd love to talk through with you. You know, tea, coffee, the whole shebang. But, you know, you know I've got a ship to run, and you've got to, you know, fix whatever that stupid suit is. Um... It, you know, so it's nice to see that kind of banter. But also, while this is going on, uh, Amelia requests that uh, that during the the trip that the map be held in her quarters, just in you know, just in case. But what's interesting is that there's nothing else that provokes it ahead of time, but it works with the scene where there's a moment of silence right before she, as she's putting it in. Where she very quickly establishes, Mr. Hawkins, while you're on this ship, you're to refer to me as either Captain or Ma'am, am I clear? And I think that's really interesting that it's just, that she's basing that off of first impressions. Even considering that she's barely, he's barely spoken a word to her. Part of that might be because of her age, part of that might just be her normal, just overall intuition. But it at least shows off this idea combined with her suspicions of the crew that it's like a major quality of her character that she is very good at reading people. Um, but it also puts things in an interesting perspective for, for the first time that things get into perspective for Jim, because 
as far as we know, he's still in that perspective. I was like, yeah, grand adventure and all this fun stuff. And then like, it's the first moment where he has to be like, no, this isn't all fun and games. This is a professional expedition. It's extremely dangerous and you're not in charge anymore just because you're the magic boy that found the, you know, because you're the magic protagonist that opened up the map. Which, good, great direction to go. It, you know, it's, that's what makes the supporting cast work is because sometimes they're, you know, sometimes in the story, Jim isn't the protagonist for a couple of scenes and that's actually kind of nice. Um, so that was a nice beat and they established from there that Doppler's doing all, gonna be doing his thing while to keep him busy or to build character or whatever, he's being assigned to work with, um, uh, Colonel Silver, their chef. So they go down to the bottom of the ship and, uh, Silver is down there and, you know, he's here this, it's like, oh, well, I've been doing, he's doing this kind of a piratey talk kind of thing and. Um, you see kind of him in shadows or whatever. And then as he steps forward, you see the glint of gold coming from one of his eyes. And as he steps forward, you reveal that Colonel Silver is, in fact, a cyborg. Bum, bum, bum. So, yeah, so... He's... So, to recap, beware the cyborg. Yes. Okay, I, I gotta say, I love his design. Oh my goodness, I love his design. And his reveal is really good. And his his design, especially his arm, where he does a bunch of cool things with it, and which is... Yeah, to, to clarify, like, the way they do this... This is kind of similar to how they did it with the original story, too, where it's like, beware the one-armed man. Like, the one-armed man also did have, like, an eye patch along with the, the hook hand and everything. So this one, they kind of did the same thing, where one of his eyes has been, like, replaced with this golden plate leading to a robot eye that we... It actually, like, changes and opens, and, like, you see it has, like, a laser eye focus and stuff. But he also has this massive, like, Swiss Army Knight arm that he actually uses, like, in his cooking. Like, it has flamethrowers attached to it and different, like, cutting nards. But at the same point, they add little comic relief moments to... Be like, oh, he's kind of like, oh, whoops, almost, almost coming off my arm there. But it's like, aha, but I'm also showing you guys that I have, like, you know, really sharp swords and flamethrowers and stuff like this on here. Hint, hint. You know, that, that, those kind of things are in there. But they also show off immediately that he has this delightful dark sense of humor. As he finishes it, like, try some of my mama beast stew. It's an old family recipe. And joking around, there's a, there's an eyeball just floating around inside of it. like, well, that was part of the old family. <laughs> and he just, and he takes it out and he eats it and just like, oh, no, I'm just kidding. You know, so, so you already get the sense that that's kind of, you know, his kind of gallows humor he sets up for himself, uh, which I really like. But then when they announce that, you know, he's going to be the cabin boy for the remainder of the voyage, neither one of them is happy about it. You know, Silver doesn't want him around. Jim doesn't want to be there. And this seems to be like the only thing they have in common. It's like, oh, well, that's just going to be it. So what we're left with there, based on the information we know so far, is, you know, either one of them has their reasons either known or not known that they don't want to be together all the time. But Jim has been told beware the cyborg. And so immediately what happens is... What I... Not this specific scene in general, but the best scenes of this movie is when it's just Silver and Hawkins by themselves talking. Because they have these scenes have some of the best subtext, some of the best writing, 
and some of the best pacing of like anything in the movie. Because both of them put up this front immediately where like, you know, Jim's trying to act too cool for everything and, you know, Silver's trying to establish his authority. He's like, so they put you with me, eh? And just, they start walking around and they, uh, Jim starts very subtly trying to like probe him for information as he like picks up these, um, these pulps, these, uh, uh, like pear like purple plants that grow on. It's like, you know, we have something like, we actually grow a lot of these back on my home planet, Montressor. Have you ever been there before? Nope. Can't say that I have, you know, like, and he's talking about like, you know, you ever rented a, he's asking him about other cyborgs and it just starts like, you know, Still kind of fits in the, the realm of, like, normal conversation. But you can tell both of them are kind of not being... You know, he's answering these questions in still intentionally vague ways. Like, oh, you know, there's a whole bunch of us cyborgs out there. Can't... You know, don't run into them all the time. He's, you know, kind of answering things. And then he gets a little bit more specific and he goes, but there's this one pirate we ran into that was on our... That we... Uh, was on there. What was his name? Oh, yeah, that was it. Bones. Billy Bones. You ever heard of him? And then his... The line delivery when he goes back is he's just he says it once to be like it's like was that it's like it was like oh shit and he goes nope nope can't say I've heard of him like it's it's funny but it works it's like bones bones nope 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 no 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 nope nope no, can't say I've heard of the guy it's like oh just curious and like it says that you can cut the tension with a knife you know the bell rings that the um, you know, the ship is about to take off and it's kind of an escape mechanism, you know, as an escape plan. He says like, oh, you know, I think I've got things covered here. Why don't you go watch the launch? You know, I'll cover it for you. Don't worry about it. And Jim is so excited, you know, at all this. He kind of just like lets that go for, for a second and, you know, goes up to, to check out the launch as, you know, we just see Silver kind of give this slightly, um, you know, just... Inquisitive, you know, inquisitive look as he as he leaves. Like, hmm, he might know more than he's letting on. Bum bum bum. But like I said, those those scenes are the best. And arrows, not arrow. Uh, Silver's design is, like we said, is just incredible with all that. But we're also introduced to uh, one of the comic relief characters in the movie, Morph who is a, uh, this little, like, floating pink blob creature that can kind of just transform into anything. Um, in the original story, this was uh, Captain Silver's parrot. And so that's, I think, where they got the idea for the morphing, mimicking, transformation thing, is instead of having a parrot squawk back what people say, it just imitates people by transforming into little versions of them. Yeah... I don't know. It annoyed me throughout the whole movie. Morph did right because a lot of the humor came from small little moments that they went back through and they kind of switched back and forth and they go through time. They had a really good knowing with Morph feels like we're like, oh shoot, we might be a little bit too serious. Hey, we'll throw him as a couple jokes and he doesn't. Yeah, like he's. I mean, it's this thing, like, he's nice when, for, like, I like the scenes when he's around where he is actually part of the plot, like, but they just, but they just kind of shove him into different parts of the movie where he doesn't belong just to make a joke, like, 
If they would have used him a little bit more reserved, I think it would have worked a little bit better. Um, but, you know, it, you know, I, I, on the idea of, like, how they interpreted, you know, the idea of his pet parrot that goes throughout the movie, I thought was really cool. I just think they overuse him a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, because this movie is not no shortage overall of comic relief. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a sense of, like, it doesn't, you know, that there was enough other comic relief that it was still, and that was still working um, without it. And there, there's some really awesome imagery as they're taking off and you see the ship and everything. And, you know, the thing that, that really, you know, points out to me with this is the fact that, like, there's still a lot of studios today that are still struggling with how to do proper, you know, 2D, 3D animation hybriding properly. And at the same point, and this movie is one of the best executions of that I've seen. And but the thing is, though, is that, like, as much as they struggled to get this movie made for so long, I, I'm actually kind of glad that it took them that long because either they would have done it way back in the 90s where it would have, crossing fingers, they wouldn't have tried to do 2D, 3D hybrid back then because there's no way this movie would have worked with, you know, mid-1990s CGI budgets. Um, or they would have to do it completely 2D animated, which I think, especially for certain big spectacles in this movie, they would have, it would have definitely changed things. I don't know if it would have been worse, but it would have definitely been different. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but, you know, but this ship sequence is the first time we've really shown off, like, a lot of that, you know, like, hybrid work next, going next to each other, and as you pointed out when we were doing the, the, uh, the recap of this, the space whales... (laughs) that are flying through the sky. I mean, they're basically just there to look cool and to show, you know, more visuals in space and all that. And you also get to see a couple more of the, the aliens, like, and some of them are hilariously fit to their tasks. Like there's one like little blue alien that has like 20 eyeballs. So he has a, um, he's at the lookout post and he has a telescope with like 20 different lenses in it. (laughs) You know, and I thought that joke was pretty funny and you know, there, there's stuff like that, but Pretty quickly, though, things settle back into pace. Uh, Captain Amelia points out that Jim is just kind of lollygagging about and that Silver should put him to work. And so he puts him to work swabbing the decks and cleaning everything or whatever. And then walking past him is uh, Scroop, one of the, uh, the, the aliens aboard the ship, which despite a very strange-sounding name... God damn it, do I love his design. <laughs> like, he's this arachnid-like alien lobster creature. That, you know, he stands on, you know, you know, like, very, like, arachnid, like, really tall, thin kind of legs. Has a normal torso and this really dark, booming voice. Big, giant, like, orange, piercer soul eyes. And, um, yeah, this big, like you know, really intimidating, sharp claw. Like one, one's kind of like a claw and the other one is almost like a, almost like a, almost like a scorpion tail, almost like the character. On one hand, yes, he is one of those characters that like, oh, I wonder if he's one of the bad guys. But at the same point, he looks and acts and sounds so badass, you just don't care. And so Jim kind of being the guy that he is, he, you know, they bumped into him by accident and, Refuses to back down when he infects him. Like, you know, it's like, hey, you want to say that to my face? Like, well, I would if your breath didn't smell so bad. Or, you know, so on and so forth. And just 
pins him again. You know, he gets pinned by the neck against the, the part of the ship. And instantly everybody in the crew is, fight, 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 fight. As everything's going crazy. But Silver comes to his rescue. And he puts this clamp hand onto, onto it. Where once again we're seeing, you know, drama going back to comedy. Like record pace. As he's just eating one of the pulps. is like, you ever see what happens to one of these pulps? When you squeeze real hard and just... You can see the thing like clamp down like by individual levels, just tick, 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 as he just screams. Um, and then Silver comes by and breaks everything up. And I mean, when uh, Arrow. Arrow comes by, sorry, Arrow comes by, you know, fi- you know, just fix everything. And he goes, you know, anybody who you know starts fights on my ship will be spending the remainder of the voyage in the brig. Looks directly into his eyes, and he goes. Do I make myself clear, Mr. Scroop? And you get a sense that these characters have, you know, maybe not prior history, but off the bat, you the, the kind of people you bump into are like, oh, we're not going to like each other, are we? Like, you know, as Silver, you see, kind of looks around the ship. But also, right when he says, do I make myself clear, you see uh, Silver flashing his cyborg eye towards Scroop as if to sing- signal him as Scroop kind of backs down and says transparently lets him go. Fat night below the ship. Spoiler, you know, big spoiler. No one could have predicted it. You know, cyborg is evil. Uh, Captain Silver is planning a mutiny with the rest of them. We've, they also tell the fact that, uh, you know, they've, gone to a lot of work to fake, you know, a professional looking reputation in order to get themselves on the ship. And, uh, you know, that Scroop was threatening to mix up the whole plan if he would have acted too soon. But he's like, oh, but the boys, you know, sniffing around. We can't have that. And you know, I was like, well, you leave that to me. That's not your thing to, not your thing to worry about. As, as they go back, and so Beck doing all of his, um, all of his cleaning and all that, you know, they go, uh, Silver goes back up to talk to Jim, and kind of tries to ask him what happened and what's going on, and leaves him with this, this message of, you know, like, I know your heart's in the right place, but you gotta know how to fight your own battle, you know, you know, know what battles you want to pick, you know, which was... It was just kind of cool, because it's definitely the kind of thing you can tell right off the bat with how fast he screwed up on his first day out in space. That's something he might want to learn. Um, and he talks about, you know, Jim opens up for the first time about how, you know, his dad isn't wasn't was never around to teach him any of this stuff and, and all that. And he instantly kind of, tur- instead of, like, letting that get too dark, he turns it into a joke of, like, well, if that's the case, then I'll just keep you busy then and I'll... Have you working so hard, learning so many things that you're gonna, you know, you're practically be passing out by the time that, you know, by the time we get to Treasure Planet. Um, at which point we cut away to a montage of the song "I'm Still Here" by Josh Resnick, yeah. where we get the the backstory that um, although we don't get really a feel for his pretend profession, that you know Jim's father was frequently in and out of the picture on different voyages and. So on and so forth, and not really, you know, there for Jim until eventually when Jim was maybe about, you know, 13, 14 or so. He just ended up and left. Um, 
his family and never returned. Um, at which point is also contrasted with, you know, Silver's kind of bonding with him, teaching him how to do different, you know, like sailor knots and that kind of thing. And, but even then Jim's kind of still doing things in his own way, which is kind of a nice little, uh, twist to it. But she's all, but he's also seeing like Silver in a new light as he's kind of being more playful and, and that kind of thing. But they also have like some really cool visual sequences where they take out one of the smaller ships and they chase a comet and like fly through the thing and there's sparkles everywhere and looks, you know, like really cool. And, you know, I don't like, I like the sequence. I don't know what it was about this scene. Like as a kid, when I watched this, that this really got to me considering, especially that I have a very good relationship with my dad. So it's not out of like direct empathy that I really liked this scene. I think maybe it's because it was so different than what was around at the time. Like, we're so used to, like, we've had these orphan kind of stories before, but it's always something less direct or less relatable. It's like, oh, they're, you know, they're, the parents died in a car crash, or they disappeared at sea, or, you know, we just, we, or we may, like, never know why they're not there. But this one is, like, very deliberate. It's like, no, he, he up and left. Like, he literally just left. Um, which I thought was kind of a... You know, which I thought was really interesting, especially because they don't really specify what he did. Um, once again, this is just me kind of like headcanoning. I kind of like the idea that, because you see him constantly coming in and out. He's always carrying like this large sack of stuff with him. That I liked the idea that Jim's father was also a, a treasure hunter of sorts. So there was always kind of that weird sense with Jim's character where... You know, it's because he was looking up to his dad that he wanted to, like, be a pirate or go off and explore space and all this kind of stuff. But also why he doesn't want to be like his dad because, you know, because his dad, you know, took the bad side of that and left his whole family for fame and fortune and treasure forever. Which also kind of ties into why he cares so much about what his mom thinks about him is because he's all she has left and he doesn't want her to think that he's just going to, you know, to, to up and run and go off on this big adventure. And it also point to why his mother doesn't want him to go, you know, on this grand adventure too, because, you know, she already lost her husband to, you know, the, the wiles of, you know, treasure hunting and all that kind of stuff. What a very cool idea. I wish this movie, I wish would, the movie would, explore it. would explore it a little more. I know. I, I, I love this movie and I'm not disagreeing with any of these points. It's just, you know, when you love something, you, you know, you, that's when you get even pickier, you know? Yeah. That's just kind of how I feel about this movie. You know, because, like, at least here we're picking at, like, potentially movie better stuff, not, like, things like Hercules where, you know, like, hey, this movie would function if they would have done this thing correctly. Yeah. But we're we're getting behind ourselves. Speaking of uh, nitpicks. Sure. I don't, I don't think this scene works. It didn't work as well for me, really. For sure. I don't know that the song didn't grab me as well and, like... The montage, well, had a bunch of cool moments. I didn't, like, I don't know. I think it would have been, since they didn't explain it enough, I think it would have been better more implied. And we didn't need, we don't really need, like, the the montage wasn't really necessary between the bonding thing. Because they have the best chemistry in the movie. Yes, when they're actually speaking and interacting. And even in the scene beforehand, you can already tell that there's a little bond started deforming with just him being like the thing and then doing that. And I would have just, you didn't need that in a montage. That just kind of made it 
I don't know. I think it slightly took away. But yeah, it just kind of wiped it on. It wouldn't have been more in. But the, the song song didn't work for me. It didn't for sure. Work I mean, it's well one of those weird me. things that's just really subjective with certain people. Like, you know, for... You no, know, I don't I don't have an example off the top of my head. But, you know, there's plenty of examples of, like, people that, like, love one Disney song while this other, like, super popular one is, like, ear poison to them. Or, like, you know, I'm used to that kind of stuff. It, it happens. Yeah, this one felt like... I don't know. For me, it was just like, okay, yeah, okay. It, I didn't mind it, but it lasted a little bit too long for me. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. Yeah. Like, it wasn't bad. Just it didn't nearly grab me as much as a thing. And I think it went on a little too long. But For sure. But then we moved on. So, so after this, we're, you know, we're seeing, you know, more of just the general ship stuff going on. When all of a sudden, there's a big disturbance. And nobody knows what's going on. And all of a sudden, they're noticing out in the distance that one of the the larger stars in the galaxy near them is all of a sudden going supernova. So there's this giant, crazy storm sequence that they're trying to fight where these giant waves of solar energy are passing by them as they're trying to get away. And Jim's job is to go th- through and make sure that everyone's lifelines are securely attached so each character ties a you know a, a thing a rope around themselves just like they would in a normal ship during storms and they all tie them to the the, the mast of the ship so that if someone is flung from the ship that they can climb themselves back back onto things so what i find really interesting about this scene is how like the the action changes throughout it at a rapid rate to like why they like there's not like a designated scientific answer of like what to do because like the second they finally figure out what's going on with the supernova they're like okay if all this is set, this is set then we'll and then we'll surely survive this but now the supernova is turning into a black hole <laughs> so now they're instead of being pushed away and possibly having the boat destroyed they're being sucked into it um. Which, for sure, I'm gonna, I'll admit right off the bat that those of you people who give a damn about space science are probably throwing up right now. And I'm not going to fight you on that one. <laughs> the, the part that annoys me, it's not the black hole part, because that, that happens a lot in... In science uh, fiction in general, it's yeah. The, it's the normal, everyday rope that they tie to the <laughs> right. mass and just tie it around themselves. Like, that's going to... Stop, Stop them. it. They're literally like, it's going supernova. And it's like, oh no, the thing. Maybe it's space rope that just looks like, no, I don't know. But it doesn't look like if they would have like made it slightly metallic or maybe something. But no, it looks like absolute everyday normal boat rope. rope. <laughs> For sure. I was like, oh, come on. I don't know. Maybe give it a little like blue line swirls or something through it. Like, yeah, this space rope. Yeah, it's stupid, but it's functional. I don't know. Right. It, it, that's one thing that did... It's one of the things I mentioned. That's, it's those minor things, but it does annoy me a little bit. Right. So as you would in this sort of procedure, the captain commands that they lower all of the sails so that they don't get, you know, torn up in the storm. And, you know, once again through all this, we have Doppler and... Uh, and Amelia arguing over what to do. And what Doppler points out is the fact that, um, that when she says that, you know, how, 
you know, erratic and sporadic all of the these giant waves of solar energy that boost off of it are. Because, well, no, they're actually not erratic at all. They're all perfectly sequenced. There's going to be one more in about 30 seconds, and then after that, there'll be, like, one giant one before the, um, you know, before the black hole completely starts corrupting. At which point, what we see the combination of his, you know, book, you know, bookish ideas and her, you know, f- you know, free-spirited, you know, creative ideas working together when she says, oh, well, we, if we open up the sails at just the right time, we can literally ride the final wave past the, you know, the, the final explosion of the supernova and avoid the black hole. At which point it just reads to, once again, re, you know, leaping back onto the funny where, you know, uh, where Arrow jumps back. I was like, Captain, we've secured all of the sails. Very good. Now release them immediately. And without hesitation, he just, yes, Captain, <laughs> you order. Like, like, he obviously doesn't understand what's going on, but he doesn't hesitate to, like, argue with her. He's just like, okay. <laughs> like, so the, so they're, all the co- crew's confused, and they, they do it. And as this is going on, she asks Jim to once again check all of the, the lifelines to make absolutely sure that all of them are secure. Um, and during that second-to-last wave, Colonel Silver is... I mean, not Silver, Arrow. I gotta stop doing that. Arrow is flung from the ship and starts climbing his way back aboard. Um, at which point, who else but Scroop pokes his head out from the corner, pulls out one of his claws, and rather than just doing the humane thing, which would have just been to just, you know, use his claw hand and snap the rope... He takes the very center in between his, the two of his claws and has this rigid edge to it as he just saws the rope slowly down to like a final strand and snaps it. As you just flat out watch Arrow sucked into a black hole. See, it wouldn't have happened if they're using space rope. <laughs> you had to bring it back to the rope. Anyway, so this also being, you know directly from the, the story as well, but in this case it was a you know a normal sea storm where the but still it was one of the members of the crew cutting the rope and letting him drown. Um, what happens after that is st- like is I always talk about this idea of sometimes it's not what a movie does, what a movie doesn't do that makes it go from like good to great. And that's what this next scene is for me. Because you know, they survive, everyone's celebrating, and, you know, Captain Amelia starts uh, asking for, for Arrow, at which point, Scroop, of all people, you know, with a fake somber look and bringing forward his hat and saying, you know, like, you know, he didn't make it. His lifeline wasn't secure. And she look Her look at... Jim, even in that one moment, isn't judgmental. It's just her still trying to, like, figure out what happens. As he runs over to the ropes and he sees that, you know, the rope has disappeared. He, you know, he's sure of himself that he checked all of them and that he did everything. At which point she calmly, you know, gives her eulogy to, to, to Arrow. You know, is you know, better than, you know better second in command that I ever could have asked for, all that, and everyone goes about her business as um, Scroop gives this smiling, 
almost wink over to to Silver, who, with all this without saying anything, confirms very, very clearly this was not part of the fucking plan. What the fuck did you do? <laughs> like, yeah, those nonverbal moments are so good. But this also is like the key of why I love Amelia's character, because if this was a worse movie, then we would have had this long, drawn-out scene about, you know... Uh, you know, about Jim and Amelia hating each other and how they don't understand this is all some big misunderstanding and how eventually they come to find out that it was Scroop the whole time, at which point they get back, like... But this isn't one of those movies. And I love that this isn't one of those movies because she's a professional captain who, you know, realizes the, you know, the, 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 the sort of tragedies happen and there's never a point in this movie where she ever treats Jim and you know any differently because of the fact that he was technically quote unquote in the the center of this you know this unfortunate tragedy and that in just in that avoids so many stupid cliches it makes me want to just jump for joy yes oh it's just a breath of fresh air but it still has consequences she still does it and she's just like this is awful but there were dangers and she says and usually she understands this was a danger mission it was just ah that scene it is yeah so following back on that we have um you know the next night where jim is freaking out because as we've established early in the movie you know, the biggest reason he went on this journey in the first place is because he feels like he's always the one screwing everything up and he's letting everybody else down and he's doing all this. And he just jumped from, I might go to ju- juvie to, at least in his mind, thinking, I'm responsible for a man's death. Not just any man, but like a, like a high-ranking officer is quote-unquote dead because of me. And, you know, at this point that, Silver's trying to cheer him up and he in particular the main thing he tells him is that you know you can't define yourself by these sort of things you have to define yourself by the by what you do with your future you have the the makings of greatness in you and it's only up to you to you know to to adventure and find that potential in yourself um and it's one of the most heartfelt that they those two get in this movie even as he you know doesn't even which I think is kind of cool for Jim's character that isn't if he just flat out hugged Silver, I feel like it would have been weird. He just kind of just like almost like it, it almost feels more like a like a like an acknowledged collapse. He just kind of just just rests his head on his chest, and just this sense of like, you know, I can't carry the load anymore. And as you know, he then wraps his arms around and be like, you know, don't worry, I got this. Um, but that, you know doesn't last for long, unfortunately, because, you know, during a fun little chase scene with, uh, you know, with Morph, they find themselves running down into the, um, into the, the below of the ship. They jump into the barrel with all of the pulps as, you know, the next meeting of the mutiny comes in as they, uh, just kind of sit there and listen to what's going on. Now, this is where the final of the major, you know, connection points to the first movie come in. The first movie, the first book. But it, but to be fair, this is the most iconic of those. Which, 
the, the way they change it using the tools they have available is so much better. Because in the original thing, all it's supposed to be is that when he almost gets caught, that one of the pirates is reaching down into the barrel with all, in this case it was apples, and he has to very carefully lift one just enough so his hand hits it and he grabs it without thinking about it. And this one with the pulps, it's Scroop is the one that that is in. So rather than just grabbing it, he you see you have those big sharp claw hands that are just trying to grab onto it. So even when he does lift it and he grabs it, he like stabs into it and and picks it up. Almost. Well he does afterwards because when they're talking about once again he's blaming Scroop for screwing up the whole plan, but he jokes that, oh, but that cabin boy, he thinks you have a soft spot for him. You may be you may be going soft on us and he like like clicks around the, the surface of the, the pulp and just kind of just pierces one little part of it as this purple juice just kind of flows down like blood off the side of it and I'm like just a really cool little scene. But Jim is then devastated when, you know, throws out pretty much everything that Silver ever said to him, even after directly Scroop makes fun of him. He's like, what was it you said, Captain? He's like, oh, you have the workings of greatness. It like even directly mocks one of the 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 um you know the most heartfelt moments in the movie. Like in a what like it's an interesting comparison. If you look at this in comparison to like the Frozen twist, at this point. You have a character instead where you completely knew that the evil twist was going to happen. But rather because you knew that they were knew that they were able to set up things better and make more use out of that twist than they would have been able to. The, the, the point of this movie was never to actually believe that Silver was not going to be the bad guy. Um, it's what they do with that that makes it amazing because you're able to... You know, even as an audience, it makes you suspect when you see all these big heartwarming scenes between the two of them, because you don't know in your head, is he actually changing or is he just putting up an act? And at least from what we've heard from what he just said, when he just dismisses everything that Jim's ever, you know, he's ever said to Jim, Jim assumes the latter. Um, What happens after is, you know, everyone kind of runs upstairs, at which point, you know, Captain even runs upstairs. Jim makes sure no one's around and goes to run back up, back upstairs to see what's going on above, you know, above deck. Um, as they've heard notice that they think they've actually found Treasure Planet and they're getting ready to land. But because Jim is down there and he's cutting off, Silver's cutting off the exit, Silver realizes the only way that Jim could have been down there in that short amount of time is that he would have had to have been down there the entire time. What precedes is debatably the best scene in the movie. <laughs> because unlike the first scene when they suspected something of the person, now they both just know. Like, they're pretty much gearing up to kill each other. <laughs> like, is there, you know, kind of just pacing around talking about whatever and brings up the idea that, you know, we just... What, you know, what were you doing da- down in the deck? He was like, I was just looking for something. You just, me and Morford just playing games. He goes, oh, I never pretty much, li- I never really liked playing games. As, and he's, as he's doing that, I 
freaking love this. I, this isn't like a major theme throughout the movie that I really love, but this, this is the first like reveal of it that I really love. Is when he slowly turns the his hand, where and just I mean mostly to stop the noise, but it helps you also see all the really cool mechanics in his arm. That he pulls out a mechanical, like this biomech steam flintlock pistol out of his arm as he's just like, oh, I always hated games, always hated to lose. As Jim's like, yeah, me too. And he grabs this set of pliers from behind him and just stabs it into his robot leg as hard as he can. And it's deep in there. Um, so he can't even, like, he could barely pull the thing out, let alone get back up the, you know, get back up. And the moment, like, I, not only does, like, his particular flintlock look better than, like, all the other ones in the movie... It's part of the major thing I really like about this. Like, I like the idea that the the pistols in particular were, like, I thought was my favorite way of seeing, like, the old technology done in, like, the new kind of art style. So, like, they all still have laser pistols, but they all are in the ar- architectural design of, you know, like, you know, pirate century flintlock pistols and stuff like that. And his in particular is it's even, like, a longer barrel on the one that he has. Like, it's this huge gun. You know, for, for like a one-shot. But just the way they reveal it is really cool. So with Jim trying to, obviously now, run up to warn Captain Amelia, Silver manages to get up, stair- get up the stairs and goes, Well, change of plans. We move now. So the mutiny begins. Arrow's gone. So they're now outnumbered three to, like, 20. Like, you know, they're... You know, not really doing the best. All they pretty much have is that Amelia still has all of her personal pistols inside of the captain's quarters. She still is the only one that has access to the map. And they, you know, he hands a gun to Telbert. It's like, you ever used one of these before? It's like, it's this typical answer. It's like, you know, like, oh, yeah, I've studied these before. Like, I understand the inner... It's like the idea of understanding how a car works, but not, being, not knowing how to fix one. You know, it's kind of that same idea. So he's like kind of even just holding it by two fingers, not knowing what's going on. Like, as they're trying to make their escape and they're like busting through walls and like they're, they've got like a battering ram getting into the captain's quarters and all that. It's a really cool scene. Uh, the main culmination of it being when uh, Captain Silver, well now Cap thinks it's a mutiny, is trying to take out Jim because he's got a clear shot at him. Um, points the gun right at him. Perfect shot. Can't manage to pull the trigger. Um, but at the same point, you also immediately right after that see a scene where uh, you see how powerful Silver really is as they're all trying to like take this um, lockdown steel door and they're trying to like weld through it with all their guns and like nothing's getting anywhere. And he goes like, Oh, blimey, I'll take all day with it. And he takes his mechanical arm, shoves it down into his peg leg. And then out of his peg leg comes his, comes what looks like a slightly larger gun. But then he grabs it by the corner, opens it up as his big cone opens up to this giant cannon that just blasts the door to smithereens. Which was really cool. They're trying to escape the ship on one of the escape ships. Um, one of the funnier 
moments that do that too is when they're trying to figure out how to to get the ship down and released and stop them from escaping and the first shot that Delbert takes bounces off of four things opens up one of the bay doors and drops like six of the the pirates down it's like did you plan that shot and he's like you know what I did <laughs> like which is kind of cool because you could you, you could think he kind of could like if you ever get like because he barely point like I could understand that he would be the kind of person that could like get the map to make the shot but with, but even then he like kind of struggles to pull the trigger but then they come up with the idea that if they just shoot out both of the you know the the, the cables lowering the, sh- the the ship they can just you know escape that way the guy running the cannons for the pirate ship decides to fire upon them at which point silver points away because are you stupid you know you'll blow the map to smithereens and we'll have nothing so it misses just enough that all our characters survive but their sail is broken and they fall onto the surfaces of treasure planet um captain amelia is badly injured and can't really go much of anywhere so doppler's left it to take care of her while um they try to figure out while you know the the map is somewhere on the planet now. They don't know where it may have dropped during the fall or whatever. And so Jim is set to go off to look for it. He goes off and, and while finding it, he's some rustling in the bushes and jumping out in front of them is this strange, um, strange robot with wires popping out of the back of his, out of the back of his skull. And we're introduced to Ben, who is the final character introduced to the movie, and the uh, the splitting point for a lot of fans of Treasure Planet. Yep. So, what I'm gonna say, I I mean I'm a big Martin Short fan, and I think that for the most part, Ben works in this movie. But at the same point, I'll bring up this because on one hand. Ben's appearance in this movie is a little strange because of, like, we're entering the third act of the movie at this point. So introducing a main character to the cast, like, this late is very unorthodox. It's not, like, never done, but, like, it it is out of the ordinary. But, like, Ben, like, I love Ben, but he is definitely, like, one of those style of comic relief characters that works better in small doses. So... I think the amount in this movie that he's in is okay, but it's once again the situation of, like, any more and, you know, and I would have been, you know, not have been doing good. Because he's, a, I think we've got about, maybe about 20, 30 minutes left that he's in. So on one hand, like I said, it feels weird that he's introduced this late, but any earlier, and I don't, you know. What's, what's really weird is that it's so jarring because it gets to the biggest climactic part in the thing and I want to be betrayed and stuff. And suddenly he comes out with a comic routine that's just a bit too long. Yes. I, that's why it's so hard. It's not like they just introduce a new character and he's a comic relief, you know, whatever that yeah. can happen. It's that they introduce him at the wrong time. Yeah. And he's tonally different from what's been happening for the last 20 minutes. If he would have been there at the beginning where it was slightly more lighter, we would have... Again, but we've only had 
we haven't had a real comic relief character. Even Morph had a point, at least. Yeah, and Doppler goes back and forth throughout the movie. comes out of nowhere and doesn't have I can, a point yeah. at the very beginning. Yeah, like when we're talking, when we say at the very beginning, we're talking about like the first five minutes or so of his, his introduction. Yes. Yeah, because like I can understand from their perspectives where it makes sense, like the idea that like the movie gets like at its darkest right before he shows up, so he's kind of there to brighten things back up again. But like I said, that if that routine would have been a little shorter. It would have worked a little bit better because like he works kind of the opposite way of Amelia, where rather than being you know, a very serious character that fast talks and introduces a little bit of comedy every now and then. He's a fast-talking comedic character that, in very well-placed ways, kind of, like, reminds you why he's there. Like, it, like, the first one is when he's going off this big rant of just, like, how he, you know, you see the wires in the back of his head, he's literally lost his mind. He doesn't have his memories, and he's kind of scrambled and Jim gets angry at him. It's like, well, you just like, you know, I understand, you know, like anger issues, you know, I've, I've ran into all sorts of people with anger issues. I remember captain Flint. And then instantly you're like, wait, what? And it's interesting because like for the most part in the movie so far as the audience, we've been very much in the loop. Like that's been the format so far. So the idea that now we're going into the third act with a character that changes things to now, the audience isn't in the loop, and now we're like, what? Oh, oh, wait, I don't know something. Now, like, like me as an audience member have, like, a mystery to to try to unravel. I thought it was kind of, kind of interesting, because we find out that he was, in fact, you know, a, a robot that worked for the, for Captain Nathaniel Flint, um, but... Because of the fact that he doesn't have his, that he's quote-unquote lost his mind, he only has these sporadic memories that he's kind of able to recall as far as where the treasure is actually located. Some, you know, it's sort of scrambled between, you know, big doors opening and closing and uh, located in the, the, the centroid of the mechanism. But we have no idea what that means whatsoever. Um, but we do know that immediately after that is he very casually shows that he actually has a, you know, a home base located nearby. And it's like, oh, that's actually like exactly what we need. It's like, oh, what a coincidence. So now they have a place to bring Amelia where, you know, because she's still injured. And the funny thing about her being injured too, is that she starts getting loony um, during the sequence. So like Doppler doesn't really know what to deal with her. Like she starts flirting with him, but she doesn't know if she's being legitimate or if, or if she's just like kind of just out of it. Um, which still works because they have had, like, they have actually had some, some decent chemistry throughout the movie up to this point, but, like, he has no idea how to react because she gets, like, very deliberate during, like, a couple in particular lines. Like, I've never noticed how, and it's your beautiful eyes. It's like, so we need to fix this woman! Like, she's just, like, you know, and it, and it leads to, like, what I didn't catch when I was a kid where... He actually gets to say the line, darn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Which, I mean, I'm not even a Star Trek fan now and barely got that joke, but I'm like, okay, that, you know, if, if, if there was ever a point you were going to slip something like that in there, you know, kudos on your, 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 on your nerd cred there. But, but he's trying to actually explain a legitimate thing. I'm like, well, you know, like I'm a doctor, but I'm not like a doctor talker. I'm a, you know, I'm an astrologist, not a... A medical physician. So, while they're trying to 
you know, figure all that out. They are set upon by the, um, you know, the, by them. Yeah, by the, the robot. By the like, robots, hey, I found them. them all your friends and brought them yeah, back. Yeah, which is unfortunate a bad time when they realize when they're finally able to reinvestigate the map and try to figure out what's going on, that the map turns out to be morphed the entire time and that the map itself is actually back on the ship, even though they don't know it. Ugh, yeah. Uh, I don't know, that... I felt really stupid, because they... I don't know, that... I don't know, that part annoyed me a little bit. There's a couple ways they could have done it differently, like... But, like, Worf was completely gone through, like, Yeah, he was gone long long enough, felt weird, like... And Morph never stayed still, except at this moment. Yeah. At no other time did Morph ever. He's I mean, always just floating around, just changing as, things, being still. Right. They like they could have just as easily made it where like Morph showed up at this point, like he finally found them, and Morph like reveals that he doesn't have it, but he hid it because Morph didn't have, you know, that it was hit on the ship rather than be, them being able to take it with them or whatever. But like, but not only that, but they are, you know. They see that the the other pirates are, are nearby or opening fire and so on and so forth. And but instantly Captain Silver raises a white flag. A surrender's like, only want a second to talk to the lad. At which point, once again, we get one of the amazing conversations between Silver and uh um and Jim. At which point Jim is like, you know, I'm not swallowing your bullshit anymore. You know, it's like it was like and he gets to the point where he almost looks like Jim, like, intentionally let Silver, like, believe that he may be getting to him. Like, you know, we'll, we'll cut everybody else out. We'll, you know, we'll split the, put it 50-50, and we'll, like, travel the world as the greatest pirates ever. It'll be great. And as he, you know, goes, like, what was that you're saying? Like, living by the strength of my own sails and not letting other people define me and, like, throwing, like, everything you ever said, like, back at him. And even throwing his own way he talks back at him where he's, like, you know, it's like, like, if you don't give me that map, I'll blow you to smithereens, by Tunder. Well, you'll never find that map, find the treasure, without my map, by Tunder. Like, it just, at which point, like, Silver is just not amused. As he just looks at him, like, this, just, like, his eye just glows red. He goes, like, you really sure should have learned to pick your battles, boy. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, that's such a good callback line. You know, so he gives him an ultimatum that he has 24 hours to, uh, you know, to bring back the the map or he will just set the ship's cannons and blow the whole thing to smithereens and find the map on his own or out of the wreckage or however he planned to. So Ben reveals that there um, there is a secret uh, back passageway to his house that runs underneath the, um, underneath the parts of the parts of his area. That allows him to sneak aboard using one of, next to one of the sleeping scout ships onto the the ship with Ben, so that they are able to um, able to get aboard. So Ben, his job is to sneak into the um, into the, the the electrical room and shut off the the alarms, so that uh, so that nothing bad will happen. So. But lo and behold, of all the people that are, you know, guarding the ship, it's Scroop. And they partake in a very comedic and very intimidating chase scene. <laughs> like, they, 
part of the joke comes from like Ben working with the scene as he's left in front of this giant map of wires and has no idea what any of them do. And then having them actually matter to the, the movie. Like, they're chasing him underneath the ship and through these narrow corridors. And it's really intimidating because of the creepy way that Scroop crawls and chases after them and whatever. Um, until one point, you know, Jim actually gets, you know, cuts Scroop off, points the gun right at his face. But Ben accidentally unplugs the lights and the emergency lights come on and everything turns red and Scroop's just gone. As he just slowly lowers alien style behind him. And just, there, there's a lot of cool stuff like that. But right before Scroop can make any notice, Ben plugs the absolute wrong wire. And the anti-gravity of the ship is completely cut off. And both of them come flying towards the top of the ship. And Jim is barely able to hold on to the just the bare tip of the corner of the flag flying away and once again Scroop is you know trying to slowly just cut that he's like like say hello to Arrow for me and he's like tell him yourself as he gets him angry climbing the trying to climb the flag in time which you know makes Scroop not think and jump because he's mad and jumps into the flag and then he jumps off of Scroop holding on to what's remaining of the rope and Scroop spends so long just getting himself untied from the from the flag that he doesn't realize that he has just catapulted himself into the vacuum of space, fittingly dying in a manner very similar to that of the man that he killed. Ah, oh, that scene is that whole chase sequence is so good because it, it the, yeah it's funny when it needs to be it's intimidating as hell when it needs to be, and Ben's like comedic presence is like. Actually, like, the funny thing with the wires would have been funny, but it's, like, it's actually really important to the, the pacing of the scene. Which I thought was really, thought was really funny. Just, like, even the way that he reacts to it was, like, all right, it's gonna be this wire. Nope! Back you go! Bad wire! Like, you know, Martin Short is really good at that kind of, like, very big overacting, which, you know, works extremely well with, you know, cartoons and you know, big, like, comedic relief characters. So when he has a line like that, he can belt it out at, like, 11, and it, like, absolutely works. And that's kind of the fun part of Ben's character, is he's, like, the epitome of, like, I mean, the antithesis of everything you usually think of with robot. You know, just, you know, you know, like, monotone, non-emotional, you know, technology. It's like, no, he is, you know, he is all emotion. He is all energy, frantic, crazy mess. Um... But that's also, you know, works well with his with his character. So they, so with that, they they get the map and he comes back, only to find that after realizing that you know Jim would sneak aboard, that they would just take you know captive everybody else in the, um, in the cave, at which point they steal the map, and Silver is unable to open it. Um, keep in mind, Silver's trying to open it with his mechanical hand, and he's just trying to brute force. The thing open, does nothing, commands Jim to open it, opens it up, and he goes, and the map gets more detailed now, showing Treasure Planet itself and this uh, strange beam of light that follows across the planet, which they're all freaking out, getting ready to follow, and then Jim just closes it, and in just the, the most badass way possible, just looks silver in the eyes and says, well, you know, 
You're not going to get to the treasure without me. You can't just leave us here to die. So I was like, all right, we're taking them all. So we take them all hostage. And uh, he's led at gunpoint all the way to this uh, mysterious platform with... Uh, as they start clearing things off, they find this hole that seems to be where the map is supposed to go. And they put it on this pedestal, at which point the map opens up again. At which point we see the giant doors opening and closing. At which point we are revealed from the, our uh, mystery from the very beginning of the story, which is how Nathaniel Flint was able to travel across universes and you know disappear without a trace of all of his treasure is that he had discovered intergalactic teleportation and could literally just, you know, warp his ship anywhere they needed to go, which, fittingly, in the hands of Pirate, would be pretty effective. Yeah, you would think so. So, with that, they come to realize that, you know, the centroid of the mechanism is in reference to Treasure Planet itself, and therefore... Since the entire planet turns out to be artificial, that the treasure itself must be located in the center of the planet. Which hilariously, all of Silver's men begin to start digging until they realize that the entire planet is made out of, like, space titanium. And they're not going to get anywhere with a couple shovels and pickaxes. So, with that, you know, Jim, still being the smart one, clicks on a much smaller dot inside of... The, uh, the controlling mechanism and opens up a door to the center of Treasure Planet. They all walk through, but as you notice as they walk through, which Silver demands that he walks through first, that they trip a small red wi uh, trip wire um, at the very beginning, but nothing else seems to happen yet. Um, with that, they look around, and it is exactly what you would imagine it is. It is an entire planet... The entire center core of the planet is literally made of treasure. And <laughs> which once again, didn't get this one as a kid. The one of the comic relief characters of Silver's team says, Captain, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. Oh, I didn't catch that one. I didn't catch it until I didn't catch it either. Oh, yeah. So, you know, get a Star Trek and your Jaws references. So you got your bases covered. Nice. So you got water and space. Um, but, like, literally the core of the planet is, like, made of gold. At this point, there are literally multiples of ships, you know, all over the place. Just everything from gold to diamonds to jewels to just everything. I'm going to have to pause this a second. I just realized. So across that planet... So across that planet, we have... All this stuff, and they're just all going crazy for it. He's running his hands through it and freaking out. But Jim wants to go out and explore. And continually throughout this, Ben keeps thinking that there's something he's supposed to remember. But this is the point that throughout this point, that every time he gets closer to remembering a thing. Even to a point right before this, where he actually got to the point of saying everything until he reveals that Flint was the one that ripped out his memory before he could tell anybody about... So there's something big, at which point they climb aboard the biggest of the ships, which is revealed to actually be Flint's ship, at which point we find out that Flint is actually dead and his skeleton is on the, the ship. Is like, it's Captain Flint in the flesh? Well, I mean, you know, without, you know, 
eyes or flesh or organs or, you know, anything that would resemble flesh. But, like, but he's there and um, it's kind of a cool thing to see him there. But in his clutches, you know, as he's from, from, from him, he sees, you know, what looks like Ben's memory. So he grabs it from his hand um, and he tries to, you know, install it back in. And the electrical wires reconnect, snap his brain back into place. And you see all of his data snap into snap in together to reveal at least what for me was the funniest joke in the movie. Or at least I think was the best delivered. I, I really like the joke. I don't know about you, but like, as far as like the simple ones like that, they're like the super clever ones. But I like the, the, the way they revealed it. The comedic timing was really good, where he was just like, I remember! I remember everything! Everything until Flint removed my brain, so I couldn't tell anybody about his booby trap! Speaking of which, (laughs) then he reveals that, you know, Flint wanted to make sure that no one would ever get to any of his treasure, so in the case that anyone did, you know, figure out how to get to Treasure Planet, set the entire planet to explode on itself. So, all throughout the sides of the... Which, I, actually, I want to focus on that a minute. I think, first off, this is a whole lot about Captain Flint. Because especially in this context, we revealed that, like, he was leaving that until, like, his dying moments. Like, that he still, even in the death, he wanted to just keep his legacy. He's like, no one will steal my treasure. I'm going out with it. So on and so forth. I think that, like, not that he's really a character we know anything about, but I think that's kind of a cool thing to be, like... Uh, that that was like his final legacy of just like, if anyone dares like steal my treasure, I'm taking him down with me. <laughs> yeah. But it also was kind of like a neat parallel for, uh, for Jim is like, you know, it's this, you know, swashbuckling explorer that like, uh, you know, that, you know, he read all these books about and he literally like died in it, like alone in like the middle of space or with just, like just his treasure by himself. Okay. A bit of a stretch, but I don't you, know. I thought of it. it, it you don't know. Maybe all his family were there for he died. They're just buried in the and, cold. <laughs> like, or maybe they, I don't know, left to go be in I don't know. You don't know his life. <laughs> we don't know his life. Well, that's what we need, though. We need the Treasure Planet prequel villain movie about Captain Nathaniel Flint. Oh, yes, definitely. So tune in for our review of the live-action Treasure Planet prequel. Like, no, no. Um, anywho, so the planet is now going to explode. And the way they do it is throughout the center of the planet, running everything in these giant, like, pulsating purple beams that go back and forth. And at the point that the planet is going to collapse, the inner points collapse in on themselves. The beam cannons move and literally just shoot through the center of the planet, you know, disrupting the core and, you know, causing everything to, to run amok. Well, everyone's trying to make their way out through the, through the portal leading them to the outside. They've, you know, throughout the ship. Everyone who can makes it aboard. And uh, in his final character-defining moment, you know, Silver is left with, like, the last ship worth of treasure left in the planet. But Jim is slowly following to his doom. And he tries to reach for him, but he can't reach for both. So... Um, the, uh, 
what, what happens, you know, he does have that moment where he just goes like, ah, oh, screw it. And he goes and he saves Jim, obviously. But what makes it work is what happens directly afterwards. Because of everything they've set up when he just makes this line of like, but what about the treasures? Like, ah, oh, no, it's nothing. Just a, just a lifetime, you know, just a lifetime's dream. Which, even from that, like, they even brought up earlier in the movie, like, he just asks him the question, like, you know, like, what, how did you become a cyborg? And the only answer you ever get is him looking at his, his hand and saying, you know, you lose things chasing a dream. And so it makes it, like, this really, like, it's like the epitome of that gallows humor where he's like, you know, it's nothing. Just, you know, everything I've worked for my entire life. But, you know, don't worry about it. Like, um, you know, it, it definitely is a nice cap to that, uh, that nice little character moment. But unfortunately, they still have to figure out how to get off of the planet. Um, they, you know, they, the, they've calculated, between Ben doing calculations and Doppler doing calculations, there is no possible way that they can fly the ship, you know, out of the blast of an entire planet in time. Cannot happen. Um... So Jim comes up with the idea that if he can find a way to get back into the back to the portal, then they'd be able to fly back through the portal in order to escape. Which, which Doppler's like, well, yes, that'd be a great plan. But did you forget that the the portal currently leads to a giant raging inferno? It's like, well, we just have to open up a different door. So they Silver and you know Silver kind of like finally like stands up again and tries to like look like I made some mistakes, but like. If, if you're not going to believe me, believe him. He knows what he's talking about. And they makeshift a sunboard out of whatever engine parts or whatever scrap they have left over from the ship um, in order so he can fly back and try to, to save everything. But unfortunately, the thing only has like enough juice to get about halfway there. Um, and the, the engine rusts out on him. And as he's like falling to his doom, he literally like like rubs this the metal from the place he's falling just to spark the engine back up again to get just enough shoes to make it work because keep in mind in order to do this too he had to convince them to literally turn back towards the explosion so like there's a lot counting on him that he either not only does he have to get there before the um you know the ship can't stop on a dime so not only does he have to get there before the planet explodes he has to get there before the ship gets there because otherwise the ship can't just stop on a dime and wait to go through. And then he has to fly right up to the thing and be able to have just enough of a pause to press the right button on the, the thing to open up the spaceport. Barely make it through the other side in time as you see this giant explosion stopping at the portal. You know, as they all kind of survive as we wind down into our last couple of scenes... Uh, we get a touching, you know, like, oh, good, we survived kind of hug from, you know, Doppler and Amelia, which is kind of kind of nice. But then also as they're getting ready to go, um, Silver pretty much knows he's screwed. Like, there's a couple scenes in the movie where he kind of just in his own kind of wily way kind of flirts with Amelia. But at the very end, he basically says, well, you can save your claptrap for the judge. And it's like all she has to say to him. So she catches, so Jim catches Silver trying to escape. You know, just making some bullshit rule about, oh, I'm just checking the knots. It's like, oh, you're not doing it right. You gotta do it the way I taught you. It's like, oh, damn it, taught you too well. You know, at which point, you know, he tries to level with him that, you know, you know, like, look, I know I did some some bad stuff, but, like, 
you know, morph. At this point, he's arguing for morph's sake. He's like, you know, morph shouldn't be kept in a cage. Like it'd be, it'd be better for. But, but he, like, so it's kind of like up to Jim's. You know, it, it's a whole movie about you know everyone, you know, giving Jim a second chance and what he does with it. So now this is like Jim's, ch- you know, opportunity to, you know, give someone a second chance by you know if if we're being specific here by releasing an intergalactic pirate, but. But that's if you're taking the the non-Disney way of thinking about it. Um, so you know, so this is his opportunity to give somebody a second, you know, the second chance that he that was offered to him. So at this point, you know, he, you know, decides to, you know, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm just gonna pretend I'm not looking here, and you can go ahead and, you know, and, and you can go just like keep yourself out of trouble and just, you know on your adventures. Like, oh, you can be sure of that. And there's this finding parting gesture. Uh, Silver reaches into his pocket and grabs uh, what little jewels he could, you know, save uh, from Treasure Planet and gives it to Jim and says, you know, that, you know, let this be a, a, you know, use this to like rebuild that, uh, that end of your, your mother's you kept talking about. And as he promised, you know, that, that even for as little as he had, it basically gave him the money to rebuild the Benbo 10 times over. As it's now this big fancy building and everything's great and they all throw this massive party and everything's awesome and Amelia and uh, Doppler have several kids and they're all cute because they're baby Disney characters of course Um, and they all have uh, kind of this square dancing line and play some fun music and kind of look up to the stars and uh, he sees kind of kind of sees him, uh, this outline of, uh, silver up in the clouds. But even after that, he sees like this tiny glimmer as he can kind of see, you know, silver kind of stopping by as he kind of, you know, swings by to, um, make a little kind of ending little wink at the end of the movie is the music plays us out into the looking into the cosmo cosmic space of space. Yes, and that's space. Treasure Planet, the cosmic space of space. Yes, space, space. That's 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 my review right there. Just Treasure Planet, the cosmic space of space. So, touched on a little bit at the beginning, but kind of is our wrap up here. So, Travis, for a for a Disney movie, you didn't give much thought, you know, thought to until maybe about a month ago. What was what? How's your experience been? Uh, you know, watching through Treasure Planet and then going back and talking about it now. Okay. I said I'm definitely glad I rewatched it. And I am glad. It's great. And there's a lot of good things that I just, I don't know, kind of wash over me or for some reason or whatever. I don't know. But for me, there's a bunch of minor nitpicks that will keep me from being like, this is the greatest. It's really good. And it yeah. does a lot of really good things. But there's just a, there's slightly too much buildup of small things. For sure. And it, whether it's just like slightly tonal jarring, there's slight jokes that weren't placed well, and there's slight like, as I mentioned before, that the look doesn't. That's not work. your particular aesthetic. It, I don't. Know, it just doesn't do enough with it. And I can see that. I mean, it's like they're doing Treasure Planet in space, 
But they don't do Treasure Planet in space. They do Treasure Planet, but they also, you know, add a space sail and a space jet engine on the back once in a while. It's not... Right. So you would have preferred to be something more like Titan AE, where it's like like that sort of aesthetic and like pure traditional space rather than the I, I would have liked them to it. find a more, more of a balance. I can see that. Where, yeah, it's just... I don't know. I, it, when it works, it works cool and it works great, and they get it a lot of the times, like with the little, like, like him riding the mm-hmm. sails and stuff like that, where it's enough spacey, but it's still. But everyone just dresses like olden days, except for the spacesuit that the giant doctor wears. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, other than that, you're just doing boats. But they fly instead of on the sea. That's... it. I don't know. It, I think it would have worked so much better if they would have committed one way or the other. But, again, there's a lot of small things. And I think... If you haven't seen this movie, you should definitely get a watch out of it. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it seems... When I remember, when I remember going back, it, it seemed dry and slightly more blander than. Any, but the the humor is a lot more subtle than you think it is, and it's in a lot of like it's not like, with the exception of like the one character who is just like ah, I'm the wacky loud one, which is why that seems jarring for some people. It has a bunch of really really good moments, but they're small and they're placed really well uh-huh. and. That, that's where the movie really shines and really good. It's just it's we're going from serious now and being sad. And that's suddenly a joke and a thing. And oh yeah, back to now this and plot and stuff. And the interaction, the characters. Oh boy. Are some of Disney's best, actually. Yeah. Like I, I couldn't disagree I couldn't I couldn't disagree more. I could I couldn't agree more. Yes. Silver makes this movie oh yeah absolutely i think like if if you accept the fact that he is clearly like a in a different category than most disney villains like he is one of my favorite disney villains but but assuming that he is like but you also like you put the asterisk on there that he's a a very out there different archetype than like a jafar or a or a he's, Maleficent would be but you he's know. not the villain he's the antagonist but he's never really the villain yeah, which is interesting. I want to touch on that a little bit because this is something we discussed when we were watching the movie. That there are, although there are some things in this movie, I'm glad that, that I wish they would have talked more about. There's a couple of them that were left. I think I I would like intentionally unsaid that I think are nice little things to plug into, like the way that he reacts to things, like you know the like his hesitation on killing Jim, or the way that you know he reacted to the fight with with uh, with Scroop and all that. Like, of course, you know that because it's a Disney movie, like, they're not going to, they're not going to go out and just kill everybody. But the way that he handles those sort of issues gives off the impression that despite the fact that, um, you know, that they are like these bloodthirsty pirates they're supposed to be, I think it does give off the idea that Silver doesn't see them like that. And the Silver is, you know, whatever the equivalent of like a semi-pacificial pirate would be. Like the idea that they're like, you know, we're thieves, we're not murderers. And that that tone comes out throughout the movie because of that good writing, which makes, you know, his reaction to the death of 
arrow like so big because the way he reacts to it it seems like more than just why did you kill arrow we're going to get caught and more of why did you kill arrow that's not what we do um because it helps also you know um thematically with the um the rivalry of power that happens constantly between scroop and between silver yeah and um Scroop, even as the cliche... As the mustachioed railroad tracks villain. You know, the villain that, you know, they imply he's a villain, but with Scroop, they're just like, yes, this guy is the evil, evil, evil. (laughs) The evil, evil villain, yes. Yes, you know. If his species had mustache, he'd be torn with it. But even him, he just has slightly bit more of a character than, you know, just your normal thing. And... Ah, oh, the character. Oh. Do we do we mention we like the character yes. design of this? We're like, this is a pretty movie. Like, I know that like it can seem like a cliche these days to just like, oh, like, oh, the movie looks pretty, but like, but 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 like really, like even on Disney standards, th- this is a pretty movie. <laughs> like, like when you see like the you know the cosmoses of space, or you know like the the intertwining uh you know like Saturn rings of Treasure Planet, or. The way the exp- like, oh my god the explosions in the final sequence or the you know the lighting of the chase sequence or you know just any of it like it and it's not just pretty because of that but like but it's, it's because things like that are pretty that make you know make you notice things like the great character design or the great sound design or the you know the animated lighting or like um like on the like on the story level, there there are some areas for improvement on this movie as much as I love it. On the technical level, this thing is a fucking masterpiece ninety percent of the time. Yeah, okay, like, yes, yes, ninety percent of the time. Ninety percent of the time, there's a couple things here and there. What you know, either depending on like you know what your thoughts on the art styles are, or a couple scenes that look significantly better than other scenes. But for the most part, this movie knows when to show off, but it also knows when to slow down and you know have some. Some upbeat uh, character moments. It's a, it, never mind. I was going to make a joke there about uh, a recent film that came out that also happens in space that balances big, giant, char- swooping action sequences with down-to-earth character moments. But that is a that, that that is a conversation in another galaxy. So I will guard my opinion of such. Two. Nice. <laughs> So, uh, of the volumes of amazing Disney movies out there, uh, this is, I, I you know, it's, it's the same thing everyone says. Like, picking your favorite animated Disney movie is like picking your favorite child. Like, but the more times I watch it, Treasure Planet, at, at least for me, keeps raising its status up from, like, weird, obscure gem no one talks about to, like, actually, like, something I would put in, like, my top five or so. Like, just because there's so much I like about it, like, you know, Jim and Silver are just two of the, just, just, Jim is, both of them amazing characters, and one of the best sets of supporting casts of, like, any Disney movie I've seen. Like, just, th- these movies are, this movie is freaking amazing. My only complaint is that we didn't get more out of this this universe in general, like, like, we had, I know this was made in a different era, and this wasn't as common, but I mean, like, come on. Like, we had we had Aladdin the Animated Series, we had Little Mermaid the Animated Series, we had, like, like all these different, sh- so many of these shows, like, like, 
show about space pirates? How come we don't have Treasure Planet, the animated series? I want that so bad. Uh, I mean, all plot-wise, they'd have to move a couple things to make it Well, the show's never really cared too much about the plot. No, but, like, if they made one that was good, like, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I can I, see it, but... or something like I would take a Treasure Planet two if they came up with some way to make it decent. Like I don't know, I just I just love this universe a lot. Like that if they could come up with something good to make more of in it, I would love to see it. But otherwise, I'm really happy with what we have. Don't worry, eventually, eventually Disney will get a live action remake the, of it. Oh my, you know I don't know. Probably in like you know I don't know how to feel about that idea. I, 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 like, I'm, the more and more I'm, like, I'm thinking of, like, oh, but they'd have to, I don't, I want to end this on a positive note, so I'm not going to dwell on that idea, but if you haven't seen it, go watch Treasure Planet. Yes, this is definitely a movie that absolutely deserves a rewatch. It, it's never going to be one of my favorites, but it's way more credit than I remember and I give it credit for. So absolutely, yeah, definitely. So speaking of uh, Disney movies that are worth a rewatch, uh, it's your turn on the pick, Travis. So Travis, what are we watching next time? Or do you not remember what we're watching next time because you I, chose it? I actually forgot. Um, it starts with an A. Ooh. Tra- Travis's next pick was Atlantis: The, La- the Lost Empire. Oh right. Cause oh, for, right, okay. Because tr- for me, tr- it's the, the equivalent relationship between the movies, where, like, Treasure Planet is, like, my movie that I always yell at people, like, why does no one ever talk about this? It's amazing, underrated, whatever, whatever. For Travis, that move, that equivalent movie is Atlantis. Yes. And I, I okay, sorry, for, I can't believe I forgot that. It's okay. Sure. It's been a while. Um. Yes, I, I picked that especially because it's also one of the underrated Disney movies. And there's a lot of similarities between those in, like, style and, and adventure. But, uh, and it's this movie. Yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about We will this. talk about that next time. Next time, uh, but. So, uh, if you like this podcast, feel free to subscribe to us either on SoundCloud.com slash Inc. Or look up Dead Men Inc. Productions on iTunes. Or you can check out more of our stuff at YouTube.com slash Inc. Or slash Inc. Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you can look up uh, facebook.com slash bomb voyage, um, all those uh, fun places. So if you want to keep an eye on our work, I would definitely recommend those things. So until next time, when we review Atlantis, the Lost Empire, I'm Ken, and this is Travis. Bomb voyage.